It's good to be with you this uh, Lord's Day morning, and uh, it's a privilege to be able to bring you both the reading and the preaching of God's Word. If you would please uh, open your Bibles, we're going to look at Haggai chapter 2 this morning. Haggai chapter 2, one of the minor prophets, and they're only called the minor prophets because of the size of the book, certainly not because of the content. The content, we can say, is major. Uh, But that being said, if you go back to your New Testament, you can roll back just a couple of books past uh, Malachi, past Zechariah, and that'll get you to Haggai. Or just look in the table of contents. (laughs) Nevertheless, Haggai chapter 2, and uh, I'll begin with the reading of God's word, so let's let's give attention uh, to it. Haggai chapter 2, hear now uh, the word of God. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is uh, unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, Before stone was placed upon stone in the holy temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you with all the products of your toil, with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, speaking, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth, 
and about to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, you are mighty and you are holy. You are omnipresent. You are all wise. You are all knowing. There is nothing that is hidden from your sight. Indeed, everything lies open and bare. We pray, O Lord, in the presence of your almighty being, that we give you praise, (coughs) honor, and glory simply for who you are. For there is no one who can stay your hand. For there is no one who can thwart your will. For there is no one, O Lord, who is greater than you. And so for this and many, many other things, we praise you. We pray, O Lord, as we enter into your presence, that you would grant unto us hearts of humility, ears to hear, eyes to see, that you would help us first and foremost to see who we are apart from your mercy in Christ, that we are most despicable, most unworthy, most worthy of your condemnation. And yet, because of your great love that you have shown us in Christ through your spirit, when you look upon us, all you see is the perfection of your son's righteousness. And so for this, we give you praise because we can enter boldly into your presence and we can say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are ready to listen. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are ready to act. Speak, O Lord, and glorify yourself in in our midst. We pray and ask that you would grant us these requests of our hearts, O Lord, for the sake of Christ and for the glory of his name. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. We all know that Israel, as a kingdom, was taken away into exile uh, because they had sinned in the land, they had engaged in idolatry, and they had suffered the consequences of God's sovereign, righteous, and holy wrath. And so the people of Israel had been in exile, and after about 66 some odd years, they were finally allowed to return to the promised land. Now you can imagine what it's like, perhaps, to return to a place that you have considered home. You know, I can remember one of these uh, a number of years ago that uh, I had an opportunity to travel Uh, to uh, my home city that I can remember growing up in as a child. And so I thought, you know, I've got a few extra hours here before my next obligation. I think I want to go and see my childhood home. And so I was able to make my way to my childhood home. And there I looked at it. It had changed a little bit, but it was in pristine condition. Uh, Somebody had taken good care of it. The lawn was manicured. Uh, the house itself was painted, and it brought back many fond memories. And I can remember as a child thinking that to, to, to walk to school, to ride to school, was really, really, really far away. And then I Google mapped it and found out it was about a mile. <laughs> you know, you, know you, you find out some of those things when you go back, but, and that's what going back home had, had brought back some of these memories. 
But I want you to imagine if you were to go back home and rather than finding things in pristine condition, instead you found them in utter disarray. You know, I imagine, for example, what it must have been like for the latest hurricane victims in Florida to go back uh, to what they thought was their home and only to find a pile of rubble or perhaps to find a shell of their house with things strewn about every which way. You know, one of the interesting and and kind of frightening photographs that I remember seeing in the news uh, the other day was one of the homes and the flooding outside was so high up that the floodwaters, you could see them about five feet up on the window so that as you looked out the window, the the water, it was like a fish tank outside with all of the uh, storm-darkened water and all of the debris. I think that's the nature of the Israelite return to the promised land. They're returning to the land not only after six plus decades of the land lying fallow, which means that it was going to be in disarray, but it was also on the heels of the invading armies conquering the land, destroying, looting, and robbing and perhaps just wreaking havoc for the sake of havoc, which means that everything was disordered. Everything was destroyed. And so you can imagine what people begin to do in those circumstances. They uh, start cleaning up. They may go into the house and they start making a pile of things to keep and things to destroy. They begin sweeping the floors. They begin rebuilding. They begin painting. They begin bringing back order to the disorder and the destruction that they have encountered. And so in one sense, this is a natural course of events. It's completely understandable and it makes sense. They were living life. They began buying and selling. They began rebuilding their homes. They began tending to their lives. Except the prophet Haggai, as they are now beginning to re-inhabit the land, he noticed that one of the places that was receiving little to no attention was the raised temple of God. And so in the first chapter of Haggai, chapter 1, verses 4 and following, Here's what the prophet says to them. He says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and you have harvested little. You eat, but you have never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does not put, or puts, does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So here the people had become so swept away with rebuilding their own lives, they had forgotten to give attention to the temple of God. And so the prophet describes their own houses, and he says, you're dwelling in paneled houses. You've repaired your houses. Your houses look well. Your houses are opulent, and yet look at the temple of God. It still lies in ruins. So on the one hand, it's perfectly understandable that the people of God would want to rebuild their lives. And I don't think that the prophet is begrudging them that. 
but rather they had become so swept up in rebuilding their lives, they had forgotten all about the Lord. They forgot all about his temple. And what I find fascinating is how the prophet describes their efforts. You have sown much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but you are never warm. In other words, they were seeking to fill the lack of contentment in their hearts with everything else but Christ. In the words of St. Augustine, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. So often it's the case that we think that finances will give us peace, that clothing will give us peace, that houses and cars will give us peace. Now, God is not begrudging us any of these things. He wants to take care of us, and he wants to give us the things that we need. But what happens is we become distracted, and we end up turning God's gifts into idols. This is what the Israelites had done. And all the while, they forgot about the temple of God. But notice, this is not just simply, I think, a lack of concern for the temple, But rather, I think that the lack of concern for the temple was a manifestation of their lack of concern and attention to the Lord. That was simply the symptom that was manifesting cold hearts towards the Lord because they were trying to fill themselves with everything else rather than with the one person that could give them everything all of their heart's contentment, which was the triune God. Now, the people responded in obedience. You know, the people responded in obedience to the prophet's call, and so they rebuilt the temple. But when they did so, they finished it, and they wept. They wept. They were distraught. They were saddened which perhaps was a bit misunderstood. It's a bit confusing as to why they would. Why was the temple that they had built insufficient? And what message of hope did the prophet hold out? So what I want us to do is, first, I want us to take a look as to how the people rebuilt the temple. Secondly, I want us to see what the prophet has to say about the words of hope that he gave to them, words that were to give them hope, words of promise. And then third and finally, we want to see how the words of the prophet have begun to be fulfilled, yes, even in our own day. So rebuilding the temple, the promise of a future hope, and then the promise fulfilled. So let's give thought first to the people rebuilding the temple. I think that as we approach this particular passage of Scripture in the second chapter of uh, the prophet, the tension mounts because the verse tells us of the day upon which these events were to take place. The second year, the seventh month, the 21st day, which would have been the the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the people were likely excited. Imagine 
if you've been making preparations for a month or more, years even, for a special celebration, and you know that you're going to be celebrating uh, the, um, the 4th of July. And so you've got all of the preparations, but this isn't just merely the 4th of July. This is the Feast of Tabernacles, celebrating God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And yet something was wrong. Something was wrong. And the prophet says in verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? the, the, The prophet, you know, like a good doctor, he points out the illness and he spares you nothing. It's not like he says, well, we got a small problem here. No, the prophet says, who has seen this this building here and who remembers the original Solomonic temple? This is but nothing. You know, I can remember when I took on one of my first woodworking projects. Uh, Naturally, I was building bookshelves. I got lots of books, so I need bookshelves. And so I, I, I got a plan for some, some, some bookshelves, and I told my wife, I said, well, I, I priced it out, and rather than going uh, with pine, I want to go with oak. I think that, you know, it's going to be a little bit more money, maybe double the money of the pine, but I think that I can build a really nice set of bookshelves. And she, I said, so is it, are you okay with me spending double the money on the lumber? And she says, yeah, th- that's fine. I think, you, I think you can do a good job. But understand this. If these bookshelves don't look good, they're going in your garage. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Thanks for the vote of confidence. Well, blessedly, by the mercy of God, those bookshelves occupy a nice place in our home. I, I did them sufficiently well enough that she was impressed. And she's like, wow, this is great. The prophet Haggai was not impressed. He was like, this thing is nothing. This temple belongs in the garage. It it, it pales in comparison with the original Solomonic temple. The Solomonic temple was glorious. It was magnificent. And at the dedication of the Solomonic temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, the glory was so evident that the Lord and his glory filled the temple so much so that the priests were unable to enter the temple. And so the prophet is being very direct here, and he wanted to ensure the people knew that this temple was as nothing. I think it's because he was doing this. He wanted the people not to think that their contentment should come from the building, but rather from the one who was present in the building. He didn't want them to find their contentment in the work of their hands. He wanted this to create a sense of longing in them. He wanted them to long for the presence of the one true God. And so the prophet is not just simply pouring salt in an open wound, nor is is he simply trying to get the people to reminisce to the good old days to remember when things were much better. Rather, Haggai was pointing the people to the future through a familiar route of the past. He reminds them of the exodus and God's faithfulness there. He says in verses 4 and 5, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant 
that I made with you when, I, you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. He says, don't look at the, the, the shabby nature of this temple, for especially for those of you who remember the Solomonic temple and think that I have somehow abandoned you. I am with you. I am in your midst, just as I was with your ancestors in the, in the, in the Exodus through the presence of my spirit, so I am with you even now. Even now. And so the prophet is pointing out how pitiful this temple looked, not to rub salt in the wound, but rather to show the people that God was still with them. God was in their presence, and he was being faithful to his covenant purposes and promises. But to what end? Well, this brings us to our second point, which is the promise of hope, or we can say the promise of a coming temple. We read in verses 6 and following, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of the nation shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The, Lord, the, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And so here the prophet draws the gaze of the people's faith to the horizon. And he says, God is faithful, he has been faithful, he is faithful, and he will be faithful yet. And he draws upon the events of the Exodus when he says, do you remember the Exodus? Obviously, this would have had to live in the collective memory of the people, that when they left Egypt, the Egyptians gave them gold, gave them silver, gave them precious metals, and it was with those precious items that the people were enabled to build the desert tabernacle. And so the Lord says through the prophet once more, and I'm going to shake the world. You know, think of it in shaking a tree, shaking a tree so that the fruit would come out of it and drop off of it. He says, I'm going to shake the heavens. I'm going to shake the earth. I'm going to shake the land. I'm going to shake the, 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 the sea so that the wealth of the nations comes out. There's a sense in which it's a fantastic statement from this vantage point that why on earth would the Gentiles give of their riches and give of their wealth to build the Israelite temple? Because it's a veiled way of saying that God would send forth the gospel into the nations so that the Gentiles would desire to worship God and in worshiping the one true God through the gospel promises of Christ, they would begin to pour their wealth into the temple of God to rebuild it. So much so, the prophet says, that the glory of the latter temple, this final dwelling place between God and his people, the glory of that temple would far exceed even the glory of the Solomonic temple. God was telling the people that the long-desired blessings of the ironic blessing, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, that the very presence of God would once again be in their midst 
and he would impart peace. He would impart satisfaction. He would impart joy that they would find their contentment in him. And in this way, the glory of this latter temple would far exceed the glory of every other temple that had existed in Israel's history. And so the prophet says, don't look to the pathetic state of this temple. This is just but a placeholder. Look to the horizon. God has been faithful now. He's been faithful in the past. He will continue to be faithful. He will make the glory of this temple far greater than anything you could ever ask or imagine. And so this brings us to our third and final point. Because we, should, we, would, we would want to ask the question, and as I'm sure the people, in, as the recipients of this prophecy would want to know, when will these things happen? When will they happen? When will the glory of this latter temple come and outshine the glory of all of other temples that have existed? Well, though many have believed that this and other prophecies, such as Ezekiel's prophecy of one last final great temple in Ezekiel chapter 47, await the construction of yet another brick and mortar edifice, I don't think that this could be farther from the truth. Think of it this way, if the temple represented God's presence in the midst of his people, then who but Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of God's presence in the midst of his people? And this is essentially what John tells us in his gospel in John chapter 1 verse 14 when he tells us this. And I want to tweak the translation ever so slightly so that it better reflects the Greek. He says that he says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us is what the Greek says. It literally says the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us and we've beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This prophecy that Haggai promised the people centuries uh, before Jesus Christ himself walked the dusty streets of Israel became a reality in the incarnation of Christ as the fullness of God came in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What does Paul say in Colossians 2.9? For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. But think of this. Why would this be glorious? Because no longer do the people have to become holy, make sacrifices, and then send the high priest into the holy of holies Even so, but only once a year. And then once he leaves, he cannot go back into the Holy of Holies again. Rather, God has come out of the Holy of Holies to come to us and to make us holy so that we can dwell in his presence. And this is but the smightest of inklings as to the glory that the prophet Haggai prophesied about. This is the beginnings of this great glory. This is why Jesus, as he was walking through the temple confines with his disciples in John chapter 2, said, yeah, this whole building, this whole edifice, this whole complex is going to be destroyed. And then he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And then John adds the parenthetical comment. He was speaking of the temple of his body. 
Jesus Christ is the very temple presence of God in the midst of his people. And now we can say, and quite literally in one sense, we found a fulfillment of that prophecy that Haggai promised so long ago, just moments ago, when you deposited your wealth into the offering plate. As the Gentiles, we who are Gentiles, give our wealth to the church of Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile continue to be joined to Christ, the chief cornerstone, as one holy living place, a temple for the living God. And so this is how this prophecy is is beginning to be fulfilled. It started in the days of Christ, where he laid the foundation, himself being the cornerstone. And as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are being joined together as a holy dwelling place for the Spirit, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The Gentiles are coming to the temple of God, except the temple of God doesn't exist in one specific geographic place, such as in Jerusalem, but rather it exists, as Jesus told the woman at the well, wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst as they pray in my name. Moreover, when the Apostle Paul, for example, describes building the final dwelling place of God, building the church. He describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says that ministers of the word of God should not use wood, hay, straw, or stubble, but rather they should build with gold, silver, and precious stones. In other words, they have to build with the precious metals and stones of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can only build the church with things that are consistent with the church and consistent with the message of of, of Christ, and that means building the church with the gospel of Christ. And so this is how the glory of the latter-day temple is far exceeding the glory of the temple in Haggai's day, and even in Solomon's day. Think of it from one vantage point. That temple in Haggai's day was a small little building with a small company of people that were gathered there. Think of the Lord's day on this day. How many tens of hundreds of thousands of millions of people gathered to worship the one true living God throughout the world? The sun does not set on the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ in the wake of his great commission to evangelize the nations. And in that sense, we can say that the glory of the temple of God far exceeds even the glory of the Solomonic temple. And yet, I don't want us to have the impression that this, as glorious as it is, begins to exhaust the full impact and intent of the prophet's message. Because I suspect, of course, there's much in which we could celebrate, much in which we could glory, where we can behold the glory of uh, the, the, the gospel as it spreads throughout the world and as Christ is building his church through the preaching of the word, as the Gentiles pour in and give up their wealth in order to see the temple grow and be built. 
And yet at the same time, we can still look at the church of Jesus Christ today and perhaps we can mourn a bit because we feel a bit more like the people in Haggai's day when we look upon the church and it's difficult for us to see the glory at times. In the words of the famous hymn, The Church is One Foundation, though with a scornful wonder we see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Yes, the church of Jesus Christ is glorious, but we still suffer in many ways, whether it's by internal conflicts, whether it's by false teaching, whether it's by external conflict, in other words, the world's persecution of the church, or when portions of the church suffer tragedy, illness, or, for example, natural disaster. And so I can't help but think that maybe at times we do feel like the people in Haggai's day gathered about that tiny building thinking how pathetic it looks, how pathetic we look, Oh, Lord, how long will you allow your people, your temple, to suffer as it does? And yet, beloved in Christ, the words of Haggai's prophecy should still echo in our hearts and minds. And it's the author of the book of Hebrews that picks up Haggai's prophecy. And the author says this in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 22, as he describes us. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less Will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? And then listen as he quotes the words of Haggai chapter 2. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God as a consuming fire. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ is still building his temple even now. And he will come, and one day he will shake the heavens and the earth yet again. He shook the heavens and the earth when he came in his incarnation, but in his return, he will shake the heavens and the earth yet once again. And the author of Hebrews explains that Haggai says that he will remove the things that do not belong. He will remove the things that are temporal. And the only thing that will remain is the church of Jesus Christ. This should cause us, in the light of the prophet's words and of the hope that he holds out to us, it should cause us to think about the priorities that we have in our lives. 
we can easily see that the people in Haggai's day had disordered priorities. They put their houses first. They put their families first. They put themselves first. And they let the temple of God lie in ruins. Now, listen to me carefully because I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. It's like my professor used to say this, and I didn't understand him until I became a professor and a pastor myself. It's bad enough to be understood, let alone misunderstood, right? Think about that one. I don't think the prophet is saying, and I don't think the Lord is saying, that we cannot have houses, that we cannot have cars, that we cannot have clothes, that we cannot have food, that we cannot have things for ourselves. If the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, that means that it is legitimate for us as Christians to love ourselves. That's right. It's okay for us to love ourselves. But that comes in third place behind loving of neighbors, which comes in second place behind the first and greatest commandment, which is loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So it's okay to have the things that we need and to seek them. And the Jesus Christ tells us, seek first my kingdom and I will give unto you all of these things that you need. Don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or the clothes that you wear. For the Gentiles worry about such things, says Jesus. So it's okay to desire those things so long as we keep our priorities straight. Which means that we keep the things of the next world, the things of the Lord Jesus Christ, the things of the gospel in the forefront of our minds. Because when the church prospers, it means that we have our hearts in the right places. It means that we're not selfishly hoarding for ourselves or collecting for ourselves, but rather we're saying, Lord, I want to take the things that you have given me and I want to give them back to you. I want to give sacrificially to the church. Why? Because every time we give to the church, that enables the church to extend the ministry of the gospel, whether it's here at home or abroad through foreign missions or through home missions, through church planning, through the the, the paying of the pastor's salary or the outreach to the local community, all of the different ways that we can do those things. Because at the end of the day, No matter how many temporal blessings that we have, as much of a blessing as they are to us and as legitimate as they are for us to possess, when Christ returns, those things will all be gone. And the only thing that will endure into eternity is the church of Jesus Christ. So there's a certain sense in which we need those things. And we don't want to take them away from ourselves But we don't want to invest in those things so much so that we put all of our attention upon the temporal and we forget entirely about the eternal. So, beloved in Christ, our prayer and hope should be that the words of Haggai the prophet would resonate in our hearts and our minds and that we would pray, Oh, Lord, help me to set my priorities straight. That my desire would be through the the outpouring of your Holy Spirit and through the gospel promises that you would rightly order my desires, that you would rightly order my motivations, that you would rightly order my life so that I would love you first and foremost. 
with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that even now as we look out upon the church and we see its weakness, that we'll still behold its glory. But even then so that we will look to the horizon in faith and that the words of the prophet would resonate in our hearts. And I will shake the nation so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we pray and ask that you would help us, O Lord, to rightly order our, desi- our desires and our priorities. So often we can get swept up with the things of this world. You are continually trying to give us gifts, but our arms are too full with the things of this world so that we have no room to carry the gifts that you have given us. Rightly order our desires through Christ and your spirit. May we rightly use the gifts of your creation and never turn them into idols, never trying to seek contentment in the gifts that you have given, but rather, O Lord, that we would seek contentment solely in you, the gift giver. We pray, O Lord, that our priorities would be to see the church of Jesus Christ grow, that we would give of our time, give of our resources, give of our finances to be able to see the church grow so that the gospel would continue to spread throughout the world, so that at the last day, O Lord, when everything that is temporal fades away, we would see the brilliance and the glory that you have promised for your temple, the great dwelling place for you with your people that will consist of the saints gathered from throughout the world, throughout the ages. Lord, make this our top priority. May the church be who we are all about. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.